Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Step back a decade ago, and Connecticut didn't even have a State Department of Housing. Now in 2018, Housing Commissioner Yvonne Klein and Governor Dana Malloy often talk about the successful efforts in the state that have reduced homelessness. Coming up, Klein will join us. Is there enough affordable housing available in Connecticut for the residents who need it? We'll find out. Now, how, how many of us are just a paycheck away from losing the place we call home? It's more common than you think. Now, some qualify for housing assistance programs. Coming up, we'll hear from Aaron Kempel, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, about the challenges residents face. Are the apartments safe and suitable to live in? And what recourse do tenants have when their landlords are unresponsive to their concerns? We'll find out how a group of Hartford residents took on their absentee landlord. That's just ahead. First, since the Great Recession, much attention has been focused on homeowners whose homes were underwater or worth less than what they owed on it. Millions of homes went into foreclosure. The recession led to a lot of demand on the rental market. Supply was low, the rent stayed high. But there's another story to the housing crisis, and that involves the millions of Americans who have faced eviction time and time again. My guest today wrote a book about the crisis called Evicted. It centers on eight families in Milwaukee who struggled to find housing. In 2017, Evicted was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. Sociologist Matthew Desmond says eviction is not a condition of poverty, but the cause of it. He's the author of Evicted. He joins me now from the studios of Princeton University. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Good to be here. I want to let our listeners know they can join the conversation, too. The number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Matt, you're a professor of sociology at Princeton, uh, now the principal investigator at the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. We're going to hear more about that in a little bit. But first, if you could tell us, you know, how bad is this issue of eviction across the country? Well, we didn't know. Uh, you know, we don't have national data on eviction. It's not collected um, by the American government. So basic questions remain unanswered. It's kind of like, you know, not knowing how many car accidents happen every year or how many students drop out of high school. So one thing that my research team and I have tried to do is build the nation's first ever data set of eviction in America. And by our calculations, about 2.3 million people lived in homes that received an eviction judgment in 2016. 2.3 million. So how big is that? You know, how big of a problem is that? So that's about twice the number of folks who get arrested for drug crimes, for example. That's 36 times the number of overdoses we saw in that year. It's in a giant, deep problem. It's affecting communities all across the country, not only on the coasts, but in the middle of the country, in the south. It's not just in our big cities either. It's in our suburban and rural towns. You mentioned uh, the number of evictions in 2016. How has this number increased over the years, and what was the reason behind the jump? So there's three ingredients to the housing crisis. You know, incomes for Americans of modest means have been very flat over the last two decades, but housing costs have soared all across the country. So by one estimate, between 1995 and today, median rent has increased by over 70%, adjusting for inflation. So families are just seeing, you know, their incomes stay flat, but their housing costs go up and up and up. 
And the federal government really hasn't stepped in to help. You know, so only about one in four families who qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive it. The unlucky majority receive nothing. And they are left to spend most of their income in the private market on rent and utility costs. Today, most poor renting families spend at least half of their income on housing. And about one in four spend over 70% of their income just on rent and utilities. That has brought us to a place where eviction, which used to be rare in the early years of the 20th century, for example, used to draw crowds, be scandalous. We've gone from that place to a place where eviction has become incredibly commonplace in the lives of low-income families today. Mm. If it's become so commonplace, why is it that... uh, we don't know a lot about evictions. Until you wrote this book, there wasn't a conversation about what was happening across our country. What are the, the attitudes towards uh, when people hear someone's been evicted, uh, the preconceived notions, the stereotypes of that person? One reason, well, some, some of us did know about evictions. You know, some of us were affected by it and, um, and saw our communities overturned by it. Uh, but a lot of us didn't. And one of the reasons was, you know, you know, the housing crisis has gotten a lot worse since 2000. And so in the 90s, we were focused as a nation on welfare reform. We were focused on mass incarceration. Those are incredibly important issues when it comes to inequality today. But there was something missing from our picture, and that, that was housing. And I think this is a moment where the voices of uh, tenants and uh, legal aid lawyers are, are elevated. And a lot of us are waking up to an issue that they've long been knocking the doors down on. I do think that evicted families do confront um, a stereotype from well-fed Americans that, that say, oh, they just didn't uh, pay the rent, you know, they were irresponsible or they're lazy. There's another kind of stereotype, too, toward landlords to say, you know, oh, they're just greedy, they want all the money that they can. And I think if you look hard at the situation, you realize that it's much more complicated. When you're paying 70 or 80 percent of your income on rent, a very small thing can get you evicted. For folks in that situation, eviction is much more the result of inevitability uh, than irresponsibility. Mm. Uh, Again, you wrote this book, Evicted. You focused on eight families in the Milwaukee, uh, city of Milwaukee. Why why this city? And how did you, uh, I guess, get access to these people that they were comfortable speaking with you? I thought that the story of the American city tend to be written on the margins. You know, we had a lot of books about our big cities, you know, New York and L.A. and Chicago. And we had a lot of books about cities that are usually kind of portrayed as some of our worst cases. This is not a portrayal that I agree with, but these are cities like Detroit. But there are all these cities, you know, that, that uh, fill up the American landscape, St. Louis and Cleveland and Milwaukee that are often left out of our conversations. And I thought that writing about Milwaukee would give me a shot at representing better the experiences of families in New Haven or Hartford or um, St. Louis or Cincinnati than it would if I, if I focused on one of these exceptional but very you know different kinds of cities um, that we hear a lot about. And to your second question about you know how to get in, I think that when you start this work, you kind of realize that the, the harder problem isn't getting in, it's leaving, you know? And a lot of families are incredibly open about their lives and generous. And I've slept on their floors and ate from their tables and met their friends and their children. And I've gone to church with them and work with them. And when you, you know, embed yourself in the lives of folks like that, you make friends, you know, you have love for them. 
And I think leaving Milwaukee was much harder than starting. It doesn't mean that starting was easy either. So some folks I met kind of were very open from day one, and others had a lot more suspicions, and I had to take it much more slower and and kind of, um, uh, you know, go forward and go back with those folks. I remember there was a time when I was living in the trailer park. I was talking to someone, and um, a guy came up to the guy I was talking to and was like, you know, don't talk to this guy. He's a spy for the city. And at the time, the trailer park was being really scrutinized by the city of Milwaukee, and everyone living in there thought it would be shut down and they wouldn't have a place to live. And so I said, you know, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a writer, you know. And he's like, well, show me the books you've written. And I was like, I don't carry the books around with me. You know, I, I don't have them, but we can look them up on the Internet. And he said, I don't have the Internet. I work for a living. Mm. And so in my head, I'm like, gosh, this is really not going great. And so I, I, he said, you know, unless you show me the books you've written, you're a spy. And so I, I called around to local bookstores. Of course, they didn't have any of my books. Uh, so I checked one out from the local library and went back to his place and showed it to him. And then he made me a ham sandwich, and we talked well into the night. And so I think there are things like that come up all the time, and it's kind of awkward, difficult work. Um, but it's also work that leaves you with a deep impression that people do want to share their stories, and they want people to really listen to them. Matthew Desmond is professor of sociology at Princeton University. He's joining us from a studio from Princeton to talk about his book. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. He's now principal investigator at the Eviction Lab at Princeton, looking at uh, the rate of evictions uh, throughout uh, the country. Um, You're going to be in Connecticut next week, and we'll learn more about uh, how uh, listeners uh, can uh, uh, hear you speak uh, at the the Stowe Center in Hartford. But I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, some of the people that you profiled in your book, uh, Matthew, and something that you, when you you read this book, you realize a lot of the the low-income families that you're profiling, they're they're living in private, living in private uh, apartments, not public housing as, as uh, people might think uh, that's, uh, you know, um, segregated for people who don't have make a lot of money. Can you talk us through or walk us through um, some of the, the families that you met and their situations? Sure. But I think your, your frame is really important. I think that a lot of us still imagine that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or gets some other kind of help from the government mm-hmm. when it comes to making rent. But the opposite is true. The typical low-income family today all across America lives in the private market and spends most of their money not on their children but on their, uh, their rent and their utility costs. You know, the waiting list for public housing in our biggest cities is now counted in decades. So, you know, I have two young kids. If I applied for public housing today in Washington, D.C., I'd probably be a grandfather you know, by the time my application came up for review. So that's the situation. And so when I was meeting people like uh, Lorraine, who was my neighbor in the trailer park, and this was a grandma uh, who uh, got by on a small disability check that was spending over 70% of her income to rent a mobile home in a place that was considered an environmental biohazard at the time by the city. Uh, I met a young woman named Vanetta, and she was trying to raise three young kids in the inner city and she was working at Old Country Buffet and her hours got cut and she was so terrified of losing her home and maybe her children that she committed an armed robbery uh, to try to make the rent. This was someone without a criminal record. You know, I think of someone like Arlene who was a single mom, right, raising two young boys and was spending 88% of her income just on rent when we met. And you see her story throughout the book 
bouncing from you know one place to the next in just house after house that she can't afford, even in the poorest nooks and crannies uh, of a poor city. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of these places were substandard. How is that legal for landlords to rent out property that uh, you and I, you know, we wouldn't want to raise our families in? It's not legal, but laws cost money. So imagine you're Arlene. You're spending 88% of your income on rent. And so you find another home and your landlord, you find a landlord that will take you despite your long eviction record. And so I remember spending one time with Arlene where she had to call 90 uh, landlords before one said yes. So imagine that long, exhausting fight. And um, so you finally get into a place and the landlord says, I need first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit. So you're Arlene, you can't do that. You know, you can barely make first month's rent. So the landlord says, you know, I'll work with you, you work with me. So when the plumbing goes out or the ceiling caves in, you could call your landlord. You can report your landlord to the city, but you know that if you do that, you might get evicted. Not because it's legal to evict someone that makes that call, it's not, but because landlords could always evict someone if they're behind on rent. So the housing crisis um, encourages situations where you know tenants kind of can trade their health and their kids' dignity um, for a roof over their head you know, for substandard conditions. Uh, we meet uh, several different families, as I mentioned, but you also follow a landlord, uh, Sharina, I believe. Can you tell us about her and, and how, when we talk about this housing crisis, it is a, a complex uh, situation in, in cities and communities around our country. Um, from one side, you have people that are looking to find a home. You have others that are offering uh, a place for someone to live, and there's a lot of complexity there. Tell us a little bit about Sharina, because when we read about her, um, you know, at times you want to sympathize, and other times you're angry with this woman when you see how some of her tenants are treated. I mean, if that's your response to Sharina, I feel like I did an okay job. <laughs> and I think that, you know, my job was to try to write people in their full complexity, um, landlords and tenants alike. And I think that we see Sharina, who had only been a landlord for four years, who kind of was a self-starter, kind of built a little small real estate uh, empire uh, by herself. She was a public school teacher before. She owned 36 units. All of them were in inner city Milwaukee, and she was proud of her work. And you see her at turns, right? Like you mentioned, working with tenants, buying tenants groceries, uh, loving on tenants, counseling tenants. And then you see her at other turns um, uh, being kind of callous and hard and evicting tenants uh, and um, even, even you know, in the in the dead of winter. And so I think that what Sharina does is also like shine a mirror onto what what many of us face in our lives. You know, poverty isn't um, innocent. You know, there are winners and losers on the American field, and sometimes there are losers because there are winners. And I think that when you look at Sharina and you ask, you know, how is her prosperity related to her tenants' poverty? We also have to ask that about ourselves, no matter who we are, about how our kids safety and schools and neighborhoods, tax benefits are connected to the lack of those for, for many uh, unfortunate uh, Americans. Another point that you make in Evicted from following uh, these uh, residents in Milwaukee, um, we know how mass incarceration impacts black men, but when we go, when we go with you to eviction court, uh, who are the people that are disproportionately impacted uh, by eviction, and that's uh, African-American women? 
Right. So eviction affects the young and the old. It affects the sick and the able body. But, you know, the face of this crisis is moms with kids, you know. And if you go into about any housing court around the country, you just see a ton of kids, you know. Until recently, the South Bronx in New York City had an eviction court with a daycare in it, in it you know, because there were just so many kids coming through its doors every day. And low-income African-American women, and especially mothers, are evicted at incredibly high rates. You know, among Milwaukee renters, one in five black women reports being evicted sometime in her life, compared to one in 15 white women. And that statistic, I think, should trouble us, because it does mean that eviction is something like the feminine equivalent to incarceration. It does mean that Many of our low-income African-American men are being swept up in the long arm of the criminal justice system. They are being locked up. But many of our low-income African-American women are being locked out, and they are disproportionately bearing the brunt of this crisis. Uh, You mentioned children. Uh, When you read the book, you might think, well, uh, maybe a landlord would be more uh, sympathetic to a a, a woman with children and and helping them find a place to live. But that actually isn't the case, uh, that children are seen as a liability. It's not the case. And, you know, I saw this myself in talking with landlords where they would say, you know, kids cause us headache, you know, and kind of um, and kind of make make comments like that. But we also see this in statistical studies we did, too. So we conducted a study in Milwaukee eviction court because we were trying to figure out why do you get evicted? But the person right next to you doesn't, even though you owe your landlord the same amount. And what we found was what made the difference wasn't it wasn't race. It wasn't your gender. It wasn't even how much you owed your landlord. It was kids. The chance of you getting evicted triple in court, all else equal, if you live with kids. And what you're seeing in that finding is landlord discretion. You're seeing a lot of landlords say, you know, I'll work with you, but not with you. Because, you know, kids flush toys down the toilet and they, you know, rip the curtains down and use them for superhero capes. And they can test positive for lead poisoning. They can affect the landlord's bottom line. Family discrimination is illegal, but many of us don't even recognize it as a form of discrimination. So you're right. You know, kids do not shield families from eviction. They often expose families uh, to eviction. And Matt, once someone is evicted, how does that eviction follow them throughout their life? Right. So you lose your home. And if that isn't bad enough, you often lose your stuff, your things, your possessions, which are piled on the sidewalk or taken by movers to be kind of locked into bond and storage. Your kids lose their school. You often lose your community and your neighborhood connections. It takes a good amount of time and money to establish a home, and eviction can just delete all that. Um, Eviction often comes with a mark, you know, a, a record, a court record. And that can prevent you from moving into good housing in a safe neighborhood because many landlords just say no, you know, when you have that record. But can also prevent you from moving into public housing because many of the folks that run our public housing authorities, even though they don't have to, count eviction as a mark against your application. So it means we're systematically denying help to families that need it the most. So we push those families into slum housing and we push those families into dangerous neighborhoods. We have a study that shows that eviction causes job loss. And if any of your listeners out there have been evicted, they know why. It's such a consuming, stressful event. It causes you to make mistakes at work and lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's the effect that eviction has on your soul, you know, your mental health. We have a study that shows that moms who get evicted experience high rates of depression two years later. And so you step back and add all that up, and I think we have to conclude that eviction 
isn't just a condition of poverty. It's also a cause of poverty. It's making things worse, and it's leaving a deep and jagged scar on the next generation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond. His book, Evicted, won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction in 2017. It explores the housing and poverty crisis in America. After the break, we're going to hear how his reporting on poverty in Milwaukee has launched a project to study evictions nationwide. Now, how do cities in Connecticut fare? We're going to learn more coming up, and we want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Access to health care is viewed more and more as a right, not a privilege. But what about access to housing? Should everyone be afforded the right to quality, affordable housing, no matter their background? My guest today explores that question in depth in his book, Evicted. Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond focuses on eight families in Milwaukee who struggled to find a place to live after facing eviction. He joins us today from the studios at Princeton University. Uh, We talked a little bit about your book, uh, Matt, and we wanted to find out more about Eviction Lab and how you've been able to uh, keep this uh, research going into evictions nationwide. Right. So after the book came out, I'd go around the country and I'd talk to folks in Houston or Baton Rouge or Kansas City and they'd say, how are we doing? You know, what's our eviction rate? Where are evictions happening in our city? And I'd say, I have no idea. I'd meet people in rural America and they'd say, I'm seeing this in my community. What do we know about rural evictions? I'd say, we know nothing. And, you know, we didn't have a national database of evictions. And so community organizations have worked hard to catalog and capture and map evictions on a local level, and their efforts are valued, but we didn't have a a, a big kind of national picture. And so, you know, my team and I set out to try to do that. And we uh, have worked for the last year and a half um, to collect over 80 million eviction records from all across the United States, going back to 2000 and sometimes further. And we've cleaned these records and validated them and mapped them, and we've put them Uh, on a website called evictionlab.org. And we wanted this data to be accessible, not only to researchers and and academics, but to to stay-at-home dads, you know, to city council members, to community college instructors, so they can go and interact with these data and learn what eviction looks like in their own backyard. So your listeners can go to our website. They can click on a map of the United States. They can click on Connecticut. They can look at cities where they live in and see if evictions are going up and down, where the eviction is happening in their own communities, they can compare Hartford to uh, Providence, for example, and other cities in the re- region and print customized PowerPoint slides or um, reports or download the raw data and, and use it. So our position was, you know, here's more eviction data than we've ever had. It's yours. Use it and, and help us make it better. Uh, the, the I guess the uh, challenge with uh, this data is the I guess the undercounting uh, of evictions and when the ones that don't go formally to court, um, how how should communities try to address uh, these informal actions that happen towards tenants, Matthew? Right. So there's two kinds of undercounting that we confront. The first kind is that we don't have every single formal court ordered eviction in America. We have states that have low counts, and we flag those states in our data. And, you know, we were kind of stuck with this quandary, like, when do we go public? Do we wait till everything is perfect? You know, and when will that be? Or do we go public when we have a lot, but we're still missing and kind of have a more open 
open source approach. You know, here's the data, here's our limitations, please help us get better. And we've chosen that latter approach. And it's paid off. You know, there have been folks all around the country that have said, okay, it looks low in my area, let me help you get data. And we've been so uh, thankful and grateful for those partnerships. Then there's this other kind of uh, undercount, which is the one you mentioned, the informal evictions. And these are forced displacements from housing that never go through the inside of a courtroom. So in Milwaukee, you know, I met a landlord that will say, you know, if you're out by Sunday, I'll give you 200 bucks to move and you can use my van. That's a pretty good eviction if you got got to get evicted, you know. I met another landlord who will just take your door off or change your locks or turn your electricity off to get you out. And so there are a lot of ways to displace a family that never are processed or seen through the courtroom. In Milwaukee, we found that for every formal eviction that happens, there are at least two that don't. So what can we do about that? So we've worked with the American Housing Survey to capture informal evictions on a national level, and those data will be released very soon. And I think that will give us a great picture of kind of the ratio of formal evictions to informal or shadow evictions. But community organizations can work hard on this too. They can survey tenants, they can go block to block and learn about like creative new ways to capture informal evictions on a community level as well. It's a problem we have to uh, keep our eye on. I understand Eviction Lab has looked at Hartford uh, and uh, Hartford County in Connecticut. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of eviction rates and how we compare nationwide? So uh, Hartford uh, has a uh, 5.7% eviction rate. That means about 1 in 18 renter homes are evicted in Hartford every single year. That's higher than Milwaukee. I think that's about 29th in uh, the nation, the national uh, picture. So Hartford breaks the top 30 of uh, cities uh, for the highest eviction rates. That means you have a rate that's like uh, Toledo, Ohio, or, or Kansas City. It's a fairly high rate. It's about 3.4% higher than the national average. And I believe Waterbury in uh, Connecticut has an even higher rate uh, than the city of Hartford. I wanted to bring into our conversation now Aaron Kempel, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we heard uh, Matt break down uh, eviction data um, that he uh, researched uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now they're doing more breakdowns uh, through the eviction lab. Uh, how do you react when you hear that uh, in Hartford uh, the eviction rate is twice that of the national average? And And what's the work that you're doing to help tenants? So it didn't surprise me that we have very high rates of eviction in all over Connecticut and in Hartford in particular. I've been doing uh, both eviction work and fair housing work since I started my career back in 1985. So not a surprise. What we really were interested in in my office was the idea of using the fair housing laws to try to change the way evictions are seen when people uh, go to look for another apartment. So the idea that the majority of people being evicted are families with children or African-American women um, means that eviction might have a disparate impact on people of color or people who have children, and that would violate the fair housing laws. So using some of the techniques that Professor Desmond used in his book, we have bought all of the eviction data in Connecticut going back to 1997, and currently our Uh, examining that to see if there is a disparate impact in the eviction. And if so, one of the things that we would like to advocate for is a case-by-case analysis of an eviction record as opposed to a blanket rule by landlords that says, if you have an eviction, you cannot live here, as opposed to 
if you have an eviction, I will look at why. I will look at why this may this housing situation may be different. Um, so we've really been inspired a lot by the work that Professor Desmond did to try and change things here in Connecticut. Um, I received a tweet. Uh, someone wants to know, uh, wants to hear ideas on what to do when a tenant doesn't pay rent. And so that's the flip side of this conversation. Uh, a lot of people that are um, stuck in this vicious cycle and they don't have enough money to pay their rent or buy food or pay their utilities. But then there's the landlord who wants their bill paid. And so how do we navigate that, Aaron? I'll start with you. So it's not even just that the landlord wants their bill paid. They need to be paid the rent in order to pay their own bills, to be able to pay the mortgage, to be able to keep the lights on or keep the property maintained. And so it's very understandable that that's, that is uh, a, a problem. But one of the things that we're seeing in Connecticut is gentrification. And so it's not just that the $1,500 or $2,000 that some people are paying goes to pay the utilities or the upkeep of the unit. But in some cases, it's just pushing the market up so that people, the rents are going higher even when they're not needed to be pushed higher just to make the uh, landlord's bills to get paid. So it, it's difficult. It's a difficult situation because um, the rents, the, the market will bear higher payments at the same time that tenants um, who are low income can't afford to pay that. And I think the person who's going to be speaking to that issue is Yvonne Klein, who's going to be talking about the shortage of affordable housing in Connecticut. Yvonne Klein is the state housing commissioner. She's coming up later in the show. I want to go back to Matt Desmond again, professor of sociology at Princeton University. He wrote this book, Evicted. Uh, did you want to um, add to that this, this question of you know the, the landlord's responsibilities as well? Sure. I mean, landlords don't get paid when they evict someone. It's not like the sheriff comes and throws a family out and then hands landlords $500. So I think that there are a million things that we can do between a non-payment of rent and an eviction that's better for the family, it's better for the community, and it's better for the property owner. For example, you can go, you can imagine a court where the family goes in and the judge asks, why are you being evicted? Now, that might not sound a radical question to you and your listeners, but it probably sounds really radical to Aaron. Because in many She's housing laughing. courts, <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. In, in many housing courts, you know, what the judge says is, are you behind? And if you say yes, it really doesn't matter what you say after that. And so in a community court, the judge says, why are you behind? And you can say, I lost my job or I relapsed. My kid got sick. I had to pay for a funeral, whatever. And there are full-time social workers in the courtroom that are helping the property owner get paid, helping the tenant stay, and helping address the underlying root causes that caused the lapse of payment in the first place. That is a court system that functions as an instrument of justice, not just an eviction processing plant, which is our status quo today. So I think there are a lot of things that can happen between a tenant kind of falling behind and them being rendered homeless. Mm. Erin uh, Kempel with uh, Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Uh, you know, this question of a right to counsel in civil matters, that's not something that's a guarantee in civil, in, in housing court, but in criminal court, you do have that right. That's absolutely right. And I, when I first started my legal career back in 1985, I remember talking to a housing court judge and saying, well, you know, at least people won't get locked up if I lose the case. And he said, no. They'll just lose. They'll just be homeless and uh, not have any place to live and not be able to take care of their kids. But if they're locked up, they'll have three meals a day and a free place to live. So mm. which do you think is worse? Mm. And that really mm. brought home to me the difference in, in, in the way that we treat uh, 
housing versus how we are treating people who, versus how we're treating crime. And so since that time, I've always been looking for ways to make the right to counsel in uh, eviction cases a legal reality. Uh, Representative DeLauro and a couple of her colleagues in Congress have recently put put together a bill that they're trying to get uh, supporters for that would increase the amount of money that the federal government pays to legal services and people who are willing to represent people in eviction. But I think there also needs to be some fundamental changes in the law. As Professor Desmond said, uh, too many judges just want to know what is it that you're here for? You're being evicted for nonpayment. You didn't pay the rent. That's the end of it. And it's not because they're callous. It's because there is no other way in the law for them to look at a case other than as a yes or no proposition. You owe the money or you don't. Uh, again, this is where we live. Uh, today we're looking at and talking about uh, the crisis, uh, the housing crisis in this country, uh, and how it's intertwined with our, our poverty uh, in uh, in the U.S. Uh, with us from Princeton University is Matthew Desmond, professor of sociology, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book Evicted, also principal investigator at the Eviction Lab. In studio with me, Aaron Kempel, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. You can join us too, the number 860 275 uh, uh, Matt, one of the uh, proposals that you offer up uh, near the end of the book is, you know, how we can uh, make this system uh, more equitable. And you talk about um, the federal uh, housing vouchers, how um, they've uh, been proven to be uh, an effective anti-poverty program. But there's still plenty of people on the waiting list, as you mentioned. Right. And it's not because those people don't qualify for aid or hasn't you know, uh, fulfilled some sort of duty, it's because we just don't have enough of it to go around. The good news is that when families finally receive a housing voucher after years and years on the waiting list, when they finally receive this ticket that allows them to pay only 30% of their income on rent instead of 60 or 70, they do one consistent thing with their freed up money. They buy more food, you know, their kids become healthier. They don't move as much. They move into better neighborhoods. They can root down in a home. They work. Uh, for the lucky minority of poor families today. But the vast majority of our low-income families aren't so lucky, and their kids, like, literally don't get enough to eat because the rent eats first. Mm. You know, I think that housing vouchers for me are one way to tackle the affordable housing crisis, but this is a crisis that can be tackled in a lot of different ways. And I think it's very important to listen to our our local leaders on this, to listen to folks like Aaron and uh, other folks that are going to be on this program. So one thing that I've done is to kind of create a website called Just Shelter that amplifies the work of community organizations all around the country. So readers can go to this website and they can click on Connecticut and they can find organizations like Aaron's that have been just putting in the work, driving down family homelessness and fighting evictions. Uh, A lot of this work is just local, you know, block by block work. The one thing I do have to say with regards to housing vouchers is that for most places in the country, it is permissible for landlords to discriminate against people who have housing choice vouchers to say, I don't want to rent you because you have a voucher. In Connecticut, that's illegal. And as a result of that, people are better able to find housing, although we find that discrimination goes on. In fact, it's the second highest number of complaints that we receive each year. Mm. Um, Mm. But that is another thing that would help alleviate the eviction crisis.
Uh, there's an, another uh, part to this uh, story of how uh, people are able to get help. Obviously, um, having uh, legal representation is important, but there's the grassroots efforts that are happening, including uh, in the city of Hartford, a group of residents who lived in the Clay Arsenal apartments in the city, uh, the Hartford Current report in June, that they took on their absentee landlord and won. I want to hear a little bit about uh, this story. Joining us now is one of those residents, Milagros Ortiz. Milagros, welcome to the show. Good morning. So tell us uh, how you and some other tenants banded together. You had this absentee landlord. Uh, what were some of the issues that you were facing, and how did you get some relief? All right, well, so, um, a couple of our issues was the simple fact the lack of communication with our property manager. And not only that, mind you, with our property, we've been through like four, four property manager in a year. So there was definitely a lack of communication there. Um, they either lose paperwork, um, work orders were misplaced, work order was never put in, or work, over, work orders were never done. And um, some of the crisis that we were going through was ceiling leakage, windows, um, windows misplaced, like windows were not put in right, um, heaters were not working properly, um, there was space between the windows and the window frames. So air will come in, and in the winter, we'll have the heater. The heat will come out, so there was, like, no way to keep the house warm or the coat out. So how did you then, uh, did you get help through the Connecticut Fair Housing Center? Um, who did you work with to take on this landlord who didn't even live in the state of Connecticut? Um, well, we went to a meeting one day with a, a property manager that we were meeting, and at that meeting, in the flyer, it said, properly said that we were going to meet the landlord. Mind you, I lived there for five years, and I never met him personally. I never sat down with him. I never said hi, shook his hand. I'm one of your tenants. I never sat there personally with him. But from there, um, we had a disagreement of how everything was going on, and we just looked at it. There was like four other tenant leaders that I work with. We were all in the same meeting. I never knew them. I never met them. So that first meeting that we had was actually the first time we met each other. And when we came out of the meeting, we discussed about what we were going to do. And we just acted on our own. And we just took the fight on our own for everybody else. And we just made meetings after meetings. We sat, we gathered along, we discussed on what we should do, what steps should we take. Mind you, some of us graduated, some of us had no class of education, so we just took it on our own and we learned on our own. Google was our best friend. If you <laughs> needed something, Google had the answer. Uh, you were able to, you were so successful in this campaign, HUD actually took away this landlord's sec Section 8 voucher funding. Uh, Aaron Kempel is in studio with me, Executive Director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Is this a rare situation where tenants are able to get this kind of recourse, but they now have to still find a place to live? It's very rare that um, that tenants are able to do this on their own. We're aware of situations in New London and, and Bridgeport where there are equally bad conditions, but the tenants were not able to get the landlord to, or get HUD or anybody else to pay as much attention without the assistance of an attorney or someone like that. And so I think what they've done is really impressive. It got HUD's attention, which is very difficult to do. But as you say, the result is not fixing the units. So we're going to lose the units and the community um, that everybody is has in the Clay Arsenal area. And they're now all being forced to move to other places, which hopefully will get them into better housing and maybe better neighborhoods, but we'll lose something 
well as well. Uh, Milagros, before we head to break, uh, tell us about your situation. Have you found a new place to live? Um, no, I haven't found any place to live yet. But like I said, um, we did this work with um, CAC, which is Christian Activities Council. They were the biggest help with us. Um, I work. So I do 62 hours a week, and I don't have enough time to sit and browse and look for an apartment. But it's very difficult because, mind you, this is 150 family that we're looking for apartments. So it, now we have to designate to live out of Hartford just to see if we can find a proper house, a proper apartment to move into. And it's very difficult. And not only that, they just give us a time period. It's, uh, and it, the time frame they give me, I can't be able to find a four-bedroom or a four-bedroom house with a Section 8 voucher in 30, 60 days. It's impossible. Well, we wish you luck, Milagros. I know you work a, a rough shift, 2 p.m. to 2 a.m., but thank you for joining us today to, to talk with us about um, how you and others uh, took on this absentee landlord. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. That's Milagro Ortiz, president of the Clay Arsenal Renaissance Apartments in Hartford. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue our conversation right after the break. And if you're calling in, we'll try to take a call, too. Thanks for listening. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, you just heard uh, we are speaking with Matt Desmond, uh, Matthew Desmond, author of Evicted. He'll be in Connecticut next week. We're going to have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. He's a recipient of uh, the Stowe Prize in 2018, along with uh, two other student prize winners. But today we're talking about uh, the housing crisis uh, in our country. Uh, he's online with us or in studio at Princeton University. Aaron Kimple uh, is in studio for, with us, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. I want to take a a quick call before we head over to the State Housing Commissioner. And uh, Rick is calling from West Hartford. Rick, we just have a few minutes. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. Um, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. So I am um, I'm a landlord, and uh, I manage about 115 units in the Hartford area. And, you know, people don't uh, – landlords don't want to evict tenants. And, and, and tenants, I think generally they want to pay their rent. The problem is, is that you know, landlords – obviously rely on the rental income and w when the tenants don't pay and, and the eviction process starts there's no utopian situation i know matt was talking about some, having the the court system have have a special way that they're going to you know mediate the situation that doesn't happen right now the way that the court system works it's it's broken in in favor of the tenant so when people say that the tenants don't get treated fairly the judges use an exceptional amount of discretion. When you go for an eviction and the tenant says, oh, I, I can't pay, the judge generally says, well, we'll give you four more weeks or we'll give you three more weeks or whatever the case may be. So there's no silver bullet to make this problem go away. And the Section 8 program also works very hard to, to keep people in their homes, but also they're not really keeping up with the cost of running the buildings for the, for the landlords. There's... There's just so many, so many problems that exist. Uh, All right, Rick. I, I want to let I want to let Aaron Kempel um, answer some of your concerns, but we thank you for calling in. Aaron, can you respond at all to this landlord? So if you look at the statistics in housing court, the majority of the time that a landlord goes to court, and by majority I mean 98% of the time, the landlord wins the case. It's very rare that a tenant actually is able to stay in their unit. The best tenants are usually able to do is to 
uh, postpone the date of their eviction. Uh, so I do disagree with that part of the situation, but I also um, agree with what the landlord said with regards to it's not a utopian situation. Nobody wins when an eviction happens. But I also think that um, in my experience, Professor Desmond is correct that um, giving tenants more time to pay or giving tenants um, some leeway tends to put more money in the landlord's pocket than an eviction does. I want to welcome into the conversation now Yvonne Klein. She's Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Housing. Thanks for coming in, Commissioner it's Klein. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, we'd heard uh, from Matt Desmond through his research and uh, through the research of Eviction Lab, uh, we know that there are uh, housing uh, voucher programs that exist uh, that can help people. Oftentimes, there's a long waiting list. And I'm curious if you could update us on what kind of, of units are available here in the state of Connecticut for people uh, that are, you know, on a certain income and, and they need a place to live. Sure, sure. And, you know, these are such crucial and important issues to make folks aware of what's going on in housing uh, at all income levels. And, you know, being in being in government, you know, identifying the challenges are so important. But the other side of this is as a state agency, identifying those solutions to face those challenges. So I'm proud to say that in the state of Connecticut, our governor truly understands the housing challenges that folks face and has committed to step up to, uh, you know, five years ago, put together a new standalone Department of Housing and where we brought together all the disparate housing programs. And we've been able to be successful in building affordable housing in the state of Connecticut and and ending in our efforts to end homelessness. Uh, First and foremost, in Connecticut, we believe housing is a human right and we are a housing first state. So in the commitment of dollars toward affordable housing, it's been about $1.42 million Mm -hmm. of housing from the state and the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority, matched by $2.45 billion from other sources, which has led to the creation of 25,000 units of housing and approximately 22,000 units of those, Mm -hmm. uh, those developments are affordable units, which is really critical in this issue. Can I ask about the gap that still exists? How many people may not uh, qualify for affordable housing but still need a place to live? Uh, Where can they go? Well, the gap, when we look at our numbers and we look at the low, low income units, that the units that we need for low, low income individuals and low income families in the state of Connecticut, it's steep. Mm -hmm. It's about 70,000 units of housing. And by creating mixed income developments allows families on a low, low to moderate income to find housing. And we have been creating affordable housing across the state of Connecticut so that whether you're living in a city or whether you're living in a suburb, you have the opportunity to find affordable housing. Granted, we have more work to do, but There were 30 years in our state government where there was no state investment in affordable housing, and that was critical. And what we saw was a real regression in any kind of work that was done prior to Governor Malloy. 
Uh, we're going to have a new governor uh, come January. Uh, this work that's been done, um, where what are the challenges that remain? Where do where do we need to keep working in the state of Connecticut so that when we see a tweet from a listener that says rent is too high, the cost of living is ridiculously high, cost is still the problem. How do we how do we help that person? Well, how we help that person is I'm looking forward to a new governor who would continue the state investment that's been made. We receive in the department about $165 million annually to build affordable housing, and that's coupled with uh, millions of dollars from our federal government. Uh, So we need that kind of commitment from our new governor, our new legislature, uh, to make that happen. Uh, And as And we need local leaders, actually, to champion affordable housing, which is a huge challenge in the non-urban areas. And so we're actually doing something about that in the state of Connecticut. I'm proud to say that we formed uh, the Fair Housing Working Group. And last year, we were able to put forward five pieces of legislation that unfortunately mm-hmm. did not pass. But, you know, I'm going to say we're not deterred because uh. we're a sturdy bunch. But really tackling zoning issues uh, is key uh, to really enacting a statewide inclusionary zoning regulation, which would ensure that people of all income levels have opportunity for housing choice in all of our municipalities. I want to thank our housing commissioner, Yvonne Klein, for coming in uh, to give us a brief summary of the work that has been done uh, in the last uh, decade or so. I wanted to go back to uh, Matt Desmond, who again was joining us from Princeton University. Uh, our time is short, but some final thoughts from some of the what you've been hearing about what Connecticut is doing and how we can uh, combat this housing crisis, Matt. I think Connecticut is a leader because they recognize that without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. Housing should be a right for that very reason. And I think that whatever our issue is, whatever keeps us up at night, the lack of stable, affordable housing is somewhere at the root of that issue. If we care about school and kids' education, we have to give them a chance to stay at the same school and build friends and relationships with teachers. If we care about healthcare costs, we have to attack uh, affordable housing as well. So this is an issue that affects a lot, uh, a lot of aspects of our life. Again, I want to thank Matt Desmond. He's going to be in Connecticut uh, next week. He's going to be the recipient of the Stowe Prize for Social Justice Writing. More information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Also, thanks to Aaron Kempel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.